Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Acting, acting. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course. How are you, Jim? Yeah, no, I'm good, thank you. How are you? You've um, you, you've been continuing the tour. <laughs> I, the, I'm into my last week now, so um, are you? Congratulations. There, there's actually an end post in sight. That's um, exciting. I was, I was in Norwich uh, last night, which was Sunday, because we record these on a Monday. Um, uh, and where was I the day before that? I was in Hastings, and the day before that, I was in Chatham. Um, we had a sign. Okay, well, it sounds like your geography is getting a bit better. <laughs> well, after Hastings, we drove to Cambridge because that split the journey to Norwich. So, yeah, sure. Um, no, but um, you know, uh, east, southeast, it's well, sort of yes, you know, it's, sort of, it's not yeah. quite kind of zigzagging exactly. from sort of Yeovil to Skegness. Well, or and then we go next this week. We're going to Liverpool, then Warrington, then Aylesbury. So at least we're coming oh, back but... down the map, and then Dublin on Sunday. Oh, fantastic! Hurrah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fantastic. But you've, you've been reading <laughs> Alex's memoirs, haven't you? So I'm yes, I thought I'd I, I, because, um, well, because of your sort of overpowering man crush on Harold Alexander, <laughs> I thought, um, <laughs> why attracted? Um, well, well, you know what? I, 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 I they're very, they're a very interesting uh, memoir. They're thin. It's, it's not, it's not um, a blow by blow. And I was white Montgomery effort. I was white and everyone else was a fool. It's not one of those those jobs. And you get you you, you also you get the you very much get the sense of the man's self confidence. You get the sense of the man's um, uh, caliber in how he feels he ought to deal with people post war. He only sets a couple of mo- there's only a couple of things that obviously he feels he has to get down because he's really really pissed off about them. But he presents it in such a sort of um, charming gentlemanly way you don't get the you know it, it, it's they're, they're a very interesting exercise like i say in, in great contrast to, to, to sort of monty's bullet pointed um uh way of going through the war um what what's really interesting though is the way they're written because it because he starts in the desert and then yes, he goes not chrono- chronological at no, all, not it? one bit um and, and that that's actually really 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 interesting it's not chronological and it goes backwards and forwards and sort of and um uh uh and some really just some really interesting things where he says that you know that, that, that there was no when the campaign ends you have to sit down and write your dispatch yourself and there's no in the british army at the time there was no historian there was no sense of having a historian who could keep track of stuff for you so you have to sit down with your staff and go right what happened then you know and, and figure it all figure it all out in retrospect and, and he says the Americans, are, you know, the Americans are much more geared to this. They've got, you know, they've got historians. They've got a thing worked out that they're sort of, they, they've got this business intellectually baked in. 
whereas the British army doesn't. And and he essentially sort of says, it's a, after the end of the war, it's a colossal ball ache that they're sitting down and getting it written, which I think is a really interesting, you know, I that had never occurred to me that... that um, well, you that can imagine be that, case. can't you? Because, you know, he's not sort of someone who's going to sit there reliving his glories. He, he's no. always someone who, who looks forward. Mm. So... That was then and this is now. And like, why do you want to revisit yeah. this? Yeah. I mean, you know, he really had to be pressured very, very strongly into doing his memoirs. He wasn't interested in doing them. And he got that guy to come and come yeah. and help him out. Yeah. Um, but 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 as I said to you, you know, he's perfectly capable of writing very nicely. Yeah. Um, and yeah. <laughs> I sent you a couple of um, of letters. Oh, yeah, his my... personal letters are really, really funny. They're but, really but, I mean, full of doodles. Yeah, yeah. But it's really interesting, though, because he's, because, you know, I, you know, obviously, I, I, the real, the main reason I went to it is to read about Alamein, having done our Alamein week, to see what he has to say or what or what he's prepared to put on the record. And I, I and I find what well, he that, is prepared to put on the record. You know, the the fact that he was the first in and and the first person to say there are going to be no withdrawals and yeah. the changing round of morale and oh, you know everything that Monty does is yeah. rubber stamped by him first. Well, yes, yes, I cannot dis- disguise that he was not an easy man to deal with. He says about about Montgomery, um, but yet there is. But he, and he says that he says my first step in restoring morale, therefore, was to lay down the firm principle to be made known to all ranks that no further withdrawal was contemplated, and that we would fight the coming battle on the ground on which we stood. German Montgomery fully concurred in this policy and communicated it to the 8th Army HQ to staff people. So much so that he took it completely as his own. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there is no doubt at all that, Mon- that Montgomery, during his address, gave brilliant emphasis to the agreed policy. So, I mean, you know, it is a, it is a combination of, of the, the plan devised and then the, and then the, the transmission of the plan. And... and, and I think it's very, very interesting as well, because he also says, I would here inter- interpolate uh, or interpolate a note addressed to military historians who are rightly meticulous in their examination of phraseology, particularly in dispatches, and have directed their attention to the paragraph in my own dispatch, from which I've just quoted relating to the plan, a plan I repeat based on a key ridge, and therefore one that demanded little or nothing in the way of military appreciation. So he's basically saying the idea that they pinched Orkinlek's plan that they proceed the the people that preceded them's plan is baloney because it's the only ridge in the entire area. So what else are you going to do? Um, uh, you know, but, but done with such sort of understatement. Exactly the plan. A plan I repeat, based on a key ridge, and therefore one that demanded little or nothing in the way of military appreciation. Although, as I've already indicated, the actual back pattern of the battle was exclusively Montgomery's. Thus, I would say that the plan devised itself by its obviousness. I mean. You are too smooth, mate. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, when I referred in this particular paragraph to the plan, I was certainly not harking back to any plan formulated by my predecessor. So Alex is quite clean to f- keen to firewall himself from that um, that uh, that idea, you know. Um, but I mean, I it, it, just that you know that that I am asked who saved the BEF. My reply is Hitler. I mean, he's just the like. It's, it's it's too good, right? And um, uh, I, I I've enjoyed this memoir enormously. And the thing is, I think there's a I think there's a photograph of my grandfather in it. Yes, that's very exciting. Of the Colonel's dad of Poppen, um, uh, of Poppen as we call used to call him, who who was a part of Macmillan's political crew, um, and who went to Greece with Churchill. And there's a photograph of a torch-lit meet, meeting. Yes. Um, uh, uh, with uh, It's Makarios, isn't it, and those people? 
Um, uh, and it's absolutely, it's, 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 it, I, I said it to my father last night, said, do you think, do you think he's it somewhere in this photo? And he said, well, no, actually, I think that's probably him, him far left. And that's his ear. And, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, there's, there, uh, it's Macmillan, Damaskinos is who it is. Winston Churchill, Anthony Eden on the right, you know, oh, in the this Archbishop. photo. Yeah, the Archbishop when they're, when they're trying to when they're trying to sort of shoehorn a political deal onto the onto the Greeks, and my my the, my father thinks that my grandfather is extreme left in the photo, so you you can see his ear and half his face, and I actually I think he's right. I think that might be him. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think it's, it's, it must be incredibly thrilling for you to have a have a grandfather who, who who's you know touched by the greatness of alex it's extraordinary and and the story of them being in the uh, um in the armored car with the bullets pinging off them on the way to their meeting anyway enough of my family we've we've some uh, uh, stuff with some emails that we that we should we should just well yes i should just say, say also that i've been uh, i've been having a phone before we get onto onto the yeah. onto the emails and um and aob yeah aob <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. I've been reading an absolutely fascinating master's thesis this weekend. Yeah, by by Pete Connor, who's a New Zealander, and he actually now works for Wingnut Films. You know, which is Pete oh, yeah, Jackson's yeah. thing. Yeah, but in a former life, he was doing an MA, and he did he did a study of twenty four battalion. Right. So all the battalions they didn't have they they didn't have sort of exciting names like the Hastings and Prince Edward or or the Durham Light Infantry or or, or the Green Howards or anything like that they were just numbered both in mm. Australians mm. and the New Zealanders the New Zealanders had you know twenty eight battalion was the Maori battalion yeah and twenty four was just an infantry battalion and it's really fascinating because he's gone he's he he did this he wrote this in I think. 2005 2006 yeah and so he there were still plenty of veterans to talk to there's he he managed to, to winkle out some some written stuff as well there was a very very detailed series of official histories that were put out some 72 official histories yeah of various parts of the new zealand division and new vision a uh, new zealand army in the second world war and 24 battalion is really interesting because of course it's a, it's a city reseg yeah um then it's alamein yeah then it's in Italy. Yeah. And the churn is just phenomenal. And what's really interesting about the stuff on the um by the Italian bit, so they do really, really well at City Reseg. They yes. do pretty well in 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 Alamein as well. But by the time they got to got to Italy, Pete Connor reckons they're they're they're, they're starting done. to kind of well, he 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 thinks they're a bit done. And you know, he was saying that, you know, by nineteen forty four. Four, I think there's all 45, there's 131,000 troops in the New Zealand army, which represents something like 19% of the population. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes you realise just how small New Zealand is well, as a population and, and in, why, in the 1940s. And also why the furlough mutiny must be... Um, is so the, the furlough stuff is really, It's the really elephant in the room, isn't it? Yeah, go on. Yeah. So, so by... Okay, so check this out. So... so by from January to February 1944, for example, he says the battalion lost on average 4.62 personnel per day to illness and enemy action. While some of the wounded, 47% of the losses, and the majority of the illness evacuations, 41.2% of the losses, would have returned to the battalion eventually. Such was the rate of personnel turnover that 24 battalion losses equated to its establishment of personnel in a period of little more than four months. 
you know, if you've got an 800 strong, yeah, 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 yeah. strong battalion. And what I'm starting to realize is, uh, and they also have these spikes, they have casualty spikes. Yes. The specialty spikes are when you're in action. And quite often, this means a whole section or an overwhelming percentage of a platoon gone. Yeah. Which then has to be replaced. And what he argues, and argues very convincingly, is that the training they're getting back home in New Zealand is not fit for the the work they've got to do in in here. So it's lots of route marches, it's sort of blancoing, it's yep. sort of making your bed straight, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of charging your bayonet at a at a sack. Not much work with a peer, not much right. work with Bren guns. Most people, you know, there's a guy he cites a guy who arrives in Italy and put on a Bren gun, he's never fired a Bren gun in his life. Okay, well, so basically it, you know, how hard can it be. So word isn't getting back to to, to New Zealand of what needs not to be done New in Zealand. Terms of training. Training. But then, when they get, but he's saying when they're in the Western Desert, yeah, when they're in fact when they're in the Middle East, what they're getting is they're getting long periods out of the line for retraining, yeah. And obviously, before before Alamein, for example, they get a big period of retraining because they're not actually yeah. involved in the Gazala battles, for example. So they're all training out there in the right conditions, and, yeah. and whether the training's right or wrong, you know, they're getting lots of training, yeah. But such is the paucity of troops in in Italy, and so they're so scraping the barrel because troops are needed elsewhere, you know, for yep. Overlord and all the rest of it. Yeah. That actually the training periods they got. So, so there's a bit there's a bit at the end of end of January before they go into the line in February, where they they have two days of training and then they have three days of relaxation going around Pompeii. Oh, right. Okay. Well, which you know you could argue is more important than the training. Yes, it's, it, you could argue if you're if you're what Freiburg has to say about this stage is really really interesting. Um, uh, he says because he gets in his head that that um, the men aren't as tough as they were in the previous war. So he says we've got to a stage which has reached the last war, whereby encouragement and discipline people have have got to be made to fight. We have to fight now with some second class material. The Germans are doing it, and we have to harden our heart to make make as many fights as possible. And when's so he, he saying that? This is during Third Casino. So, right. um, okay. Uh, so, so yeah. that, that is uh, that is absolutely the conclusion that that, that Pete yeah. comes to. Yeah. So, so it's fascinating because these. So, so what happens is is in New Zealand, it's it's not the same as the British Army. You know, New Zealand no. are a dominion; they can do things however they like. Yeah. Yeah. And they're much smaller, so you know, none of the rules that would apply to kind of recruitment. Yeah, in in Britain, apply in New Zealand, yeah. or very few of them. So what they have is they have these, they have this initial draft, and then they have reinforcements. Yeah, and basically, you you are eligible for the draft at eighteen, but you can't go and serve overseas until you're twenty one. Yeah, so you have these reinforcements, uh, and and mid nineteen forty four, you you're, you're reaching the tenth reinforcement. So yeah. most of the troops. At casino are from the eighth reinforcement, yep. and one of the reasons why these reinforcements sending them over to think, uh, has been accelerated is because of these furloughs. Yeah. So there is the um, the Raupehu draft. I hope I've pronounced that. That's right. right. There's the Raupehu draft and the um, the uh, uh, Wakatipu draft. Yes. Um, so the Wahu the Wapehu draft is the one that happens in July 1943. So yeah. Tunisia's over. It's all done. They've done. You know, Takruna and Fideville, all the rest of it. They've had a hell of a time. They've basically been in the front line ever since Alamein, you know, the previous July. So they've had ten months in the front line. They've yeah. done basically they've done 130 days of combat. Yes, they've they've done everything. in that period. Yeah, yeah. Um, since yeah. they first arrived, the New Zealand division, yeah. second New Zealand division. 
expert or the second New, New Zealand Expeditionary Forces, if it is correct title. Yeah. And so 6,000 of these first three echelons that have been sent out there are eligible to return. Yeah. Now, what happens with the New Zealand Force is that once you've been in the front line long enough, you know, it is recognised that you've done your bit. So then you get put into the echelons, you know, you become a supply chief, driving a truck, whatever. Yeah. You know, out of the line, you know, you're, you're at, you know, battalion headquarters, whatever. So you're not in those sort of rifle companies anymore. Yeah. So a lot of those 6,000 are men that have already been taken out of the rifle companies. But, of course, that then puts on greater pressure on those on the supplies. Yeah. You, you know, whichever way you cut it, you're 6,000 yeah. men down. Yeah. And then you've got the second the second draft for furlough. And what this means is that, uh, as Jonathan Fennell writes, and as you've been pointing out, is you've suddenly got this, this gap by March 1944, where you've still got some diehards there, but you haven't got enough. You've got a lot of people that are coming in, replacements, yeah. who are not particularly well-trained. And in the past, that wouldn't have mattered because you come to you, you do your basics over in New Zealand, you get on the yeah. ship, you come over. Other interesting thing is, is you, you, when you might be a, um, an officer or an NCO in New Zealand for training, which you've earned those stripes mm, because you mm. join at 18 and by the time yep. you're 20 or 21, you've yep. actually done sufficiently good enough to kind of get promoted. But when you come, when you arrive in the Middle East or when you arrive in Italy, you're demoted a stripe. Yeah. So there's no officer, there's no Sandhurst equivalent. No. The officers are the officers because they're a cut above the others and they, they've shown obvious leadership and, and you know, an aptitude and, and courage and all that kind of stuff and, and just sort of leadership of men. So quite often a first lieutenant might arrive in the Middle East and then be reduced to a sergeant and a sergeant reduced to a corporal. And very often that you'll quickly get that back again. Yeah. And there's a kind of understanding of this. So it's not yeah, it's yeah. not like it's a shock. So everyone's up for it and, and it doesn't cause any resentment or anything. But the whole process works because in the Western Desert, you have these periods of training and acclimatization well, and, well, and all the rest of it and and stint in the in the canal zone. But in Italy such as the paucity of troops, that there's no time for that. So you're just yeah. shoved in. Well, this is what Freiburg has to say. Um, in, uh, and he says, uh, in the writing of the Prime Minister on the 6th of June, 1944, right? Um, and there's the idea is that 2nd New Zealand Division is like a family business. It's like and where everyone's a shareholder, because that's the New Zealand way of doing things. But he says, the inevitable effect of fierce fighting over a long period on even the best troops in the world is becoming apparent. There is no doubt in my mind that the high watermark of our battleworthiness was reached at Sidi Rezeg and Belhamid in November 1941. Yes. So he's saying, so we've had three years since. Mm. In that campaign and the other costly Western Desert battles which followed, many of our best men became casualties and gradually the keen fight against the force was blunted. For a period, the gradual reduction in offensive spirit was offset by the increased efficiency of the divisional machine and the ever-increasing battle experience of our commanders. Time has gone on. Another long campaign in Italy has followed. I know the great stress of battle, which large numbers of men have been through, and we cannot disregard its effect, especially on battle-weary leaders. Signs are not lacking now that many of the old hands require a prolonged rest. I have come to the conclusion that the time may well be opportune for the complete withdrawal of two NZEF. Isn't yeah. that amazing? It's He's absolutely saying, amazing. We are done. We've 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 run out of people. We've ground through the good people. They're all gone, and the uh, and the quality of fight of the fighting's too difficult. It's too hard. And you know what? 
Are they withdrawn? No, of course not. <laughs> no. 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 They're not. I mean, it's 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 really, really it really is interesting. And yeah. um the one thing that's hitting me really clearly, and actually when I stop and think about it, I'm not surprised about, is that all these battalions are under strength all yeah. the time. Yeah. And the traditional narrative in Italy is that okay, so we have parity of divisions, but at least we had you know, they were full strength, whereas, you know, Germans are operating at 50% strength or less or whatever. Yeah. What's really interesting is, is that in terms of fighting strength, which is what you're talking about, yeah. Allied the Allied battalions aren't much better. No. They're maybe 60% or 70% well, strength, well, but they're certainly not 100. Well, funnily enough, that's a point um, Alex makes at the end of his memoir where he where he basically says there's no point, there's no point um, counting divisions to know what anyone's fighting strength is. There's just... There's, you're you're wasting your time if you try and look at what was happening in Italy by going oh there's 25 of us and 32 of 32 of them or whatever. You just you it's a, a pointless exercise um, because well, after agree. all we have a big tail and fighting strength because of the because of the relentlessness of the fighting is this that and the other. I mean what's what's interesting is Freiburg is describing the fighting in. Um, uh, in in Italy at this time is as bad as the last war. He says it's the same as the it's the same as the last war. We're yeah. we're we're being put through the same thing, and uh, you know, uh, at, at second casino eight hundred sixteen casualties, third casino it's two thousand one hundred six losses for the Kiwis. That's such a lot of your fighting strength. When you think, yeah. think your you know your maximum fighting strength is about nine and a half thousand. Yeah, in a full strength division. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, but if you're already kind of at sixty yeah. percent, then that's about a third of your force. Exactly. Your yeah. And force. he and he writes to Clark on the third of April. Says, says, you know, we failed. Sorry, we didn't ca- accomplish our mission. Capture Casino. And then he writes to Lease a week later. He writes to Lease for handing over to Thirteen Corps, giving them such a difficult position. He, you know, he 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 knows he's he knows it's got. I mean, what's interesting is Freiburg is telling everyone it's gone wrong. Um. Uh. And you know, again, Jonathan. According to Jonathan, you know, the mailbag is full of people calling despondent about the casualties. The you know, the census report, they're despondent, and some people are calling Freiburg a butcher because wow. because of what's happened. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. The thing is, is this isn't a sideshow? What's going? You know, sideshow. No, it, it isn't. Sideshow. Sideshow implies that the fighting is, I don't know, somehow. Less stressful or less important, but you no, are. It's, it's, tie- actually, it's actually about as tough as it gets, isn't it? Yeah, and it's tying up again. It's tying up the Germans, and it's this whole thing that these are divisions the Germans can't. It's obviously it's divisions we can't. De- the British, and the Americans, the, the Allies can't deploy elsewhere, but it's certainly divisions the Germans can't deploy elsewhere. Um, well, because- we've got a question that touches on that. Well, actually. should we? Should we, should we should come we, to it? I tell you what. Yeah, should, should, we, should we? Should we do that? Should we? Should we, we should we've we- even got a script this week. <laughs> What the, old days. the shock, the um, horror. Uh, 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 let, let, well, maybe we should read these little these little messages out first, and then we'll go, do, and then we'll yes, get yes, to exactly. questions. So afterwards. this one's from um, Ollie Martin. I don't know if you know the story of the 160 airmen of Buchenwald, but as the grandson of one of them, I've spent a lot of time, lots of time researching my grandfather's story. How, as an RAF fighter pilot, he was shot down over occupied France. How he evaded capture and worked with the Mackie. How he's betrayed in Paris by the Gestapo and incarcerated in, in Fres, Fres, is it Fresnes or Fresnes? Yeah, I think it must be Fresnes, wasn't it? Fresnes, I think, prison. Only to be transported to Buchenwald concentration camp with 167 fellow Allied airmen and sentenced to death, only to be rescued by the Luftwaffe. 
They spent the rest of the war in prisoner war camps, but were involved in two additional force marches before eventually stealing a VW and escaping back to England. Wow. That's a heck of a story. I didn't know that. We know that we need, we need that in full, Ollie, when you've researched it. Um, that's yep. extraordinary. Come back um, to us. I mean, interesting, the Luftwaffe intervening. That's, 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 you know, but that, how, when is that in the war? Because after all, later stages of the right war. Right at the end, just, isn't it? Because yeah. the Luftwaffe sort of, um, they, they mutiny, don't they, against Germany? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes, There's they Mackie do. Steinhoff and that's, that's Steinhoff and, and Galland as well, doesn't it? They, yeah, they, so they maybe say it's all can, part of that. We can't do this. Um, this is a, and here's one from Gary Calderwood, which is curious. I was unaware that during the Second World War, the government introduced double British summertime, two hours yes. extra daylight to save energy. Yes. How much energy did this save? Do you guys know anything about this? Was it successful? I imagine it was. Well, yeah, that's why it's so lightened. That's why in France, they think of the liberation as, uh, you know, the first house to be liberated was half past 11 at night. Oh, yes. But for Britain, it's half past 12. <laughs> Well, to, confusing so, your D days. Those, those was it the fifth? Was it the sixth? Oh. Those differences are important. Yes, was it the fifth or the sixth? That's a very yeah. good when it, And the yeah, Germans well, were operating at a different time, weren't they? Yes, they were. And the, but 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 the the landings that arrive on D minus one are on D minus. The sixth of June is D day. Let's let's let's. Yeah, not, no, 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 there's no question about that. <laughs> no, but, 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 but we think we think the first people touched down at yeah, kind yeah. of thirteen minutes past. You know, midnight. Um, yeah. um, um, at midnight, but yeah. Yeah, but it's the sixth of June as far as we're concerned. And frankly, that's exactly. all that matters. Exactly, all that matters. <laughs> right, and then um, from Michael Carpenter, my grandparents lived in Mudderford, Dorset, opposite Very the nice. airfield. There, during the war, they built horse gliders at the airspeed factory. Whenever we used to walk our dog with my dad over the airfield, we used to pass the tubular wreckage of light aircraft in the brambles. My grandfather was one of the lo- was a local policeman during the war, and he always told me it was the wreckage of a small plane that two German lads flew from Germany, escaping the Nazis. Have you ever heard this story? No. We'll have to look that up, won't we? Mudford. I mean, what would it have been? A Fiesler Storch or something? Or a Bouchon or some light aircraft escaping? I don't know. I, I don't mean, know, but there did... are lots of stories that get distorted. So so um, a fellow was, was talking to me the other day and he said, said, you know, his father used to, his grandfather used to work at a factory making gearboxes um, uh, for Cromwell tanks. And yeah. he said the amazing thing was, was uh, just before the war or something, the Germans came over and, uh, or, I don't know, they kept something. And anyway, and it ended up being the basis of the Tiger tank. And my grandfather always said that, you know, they were still, you know, they're still finding bits of old yes. Cromwell gearbox that were used for Tiger tanks in, you know, in Regensburg <laughs> or somewhere, somewhere like that. And yeah. I said, well, I don't think that can be true because yeah. gearbox of a Tiger was, you know, was a totally different beast to that of the, of the Churchill tank. Yeah. Very, very complex, designed by Ferdinand Porsche. And he went, yeah. oh, well, thanks for putting me right. <laughs> but, but, you know, these stories come down and it might yeah. just have been some tubular piping from a something yeah. completely different. Uh, funny, that's that's very good. I don't know. That's, anyway. We don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, although there were plenty of defectors, so there were There were, who, so it might well be. He might well be might well be. He might be, well be. Uh, he might I, be right. He might be wrong. amazing st- story about the defectors I was uh, someone was telling me about where they where they tried twice. There's a crew in a Heinkel who tried twice. They landed and they got out and, th- and they went to the control tower and the control tower like drew pistols on them. So they ran away and got back in the Heinkel and flew off again back to Germany. Really? And then three months later turned up again. Yeah. And then they ended up in... They ended we up in... trying again. It, 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 but, but the pilot was a communist, apparently, um, in the Luftwaffe. And he ended up, and he ended up in Niesden, which is, you know, where... Where yeah. MI6 used to keep people like um, pedestal um, in ah. in that neighbourhood, yeah, which is where the sort of shadow, which is where the 
new intelligence. We should uh, do something on, on sort of strange but true. Yeah, that's a good you idea. You know, weird, weird, funny things that sort of... Yeah. Strange but true. Who'd have, th- who'd have thunk it? Yes. Who'd have um, thunk uh, it? Yeah. Uh, um, right. Um, uh, should we take a break and then do some questions? Yeah, that's very exciting. Why not? We will be back in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, the Second World War podcast for all your Second World War needs. And by the way, on the subject of Second World War needs, have you got your copy of The Tiger Feeble yet, Jim? Yes, I have. I haven't looked at it yet. Is it quite sexy? It is very sexy. And it's got like um, any book that comes with pull-out schematics. Yes, no, um, very strong. Is very 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 strong. Um, a tiger. That's the from the tank museum. Uh, Rachel's cousin yesterday told me about Travel Man, which I'd never watched before. Oh yeah, you know Richard Iwada, yeah. and um, and the first one we watched was him with Noel Fielding in Copenhagen, mm. and <laughs> it was just so funny hearing someone talking exactly like you do when you're doing dark. <laughs> I also got um, Martin Davidson's new book, Mobilising Hate. That's incredibly exciting. Yeah, it's it's really good as well. I've got to read that in very quick order. Yes, I need to read it. And and then I got, someone sent me this. Um, Oh, yes. Hellfire. Hellfire. Featuring Jack Tenor. Um, uh, (laughs) Jack Tenor. August 1942, North Africa. Well, Um, I was thinking just in, 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 you know, we've never done that as as an audio for the patron. No, we haven't, have we? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I'd like to think you're in for a treat, but you know, okay, <laughs> you I can get, I get that. I could get that done. Um, anyway, should we do these questions? Yes. 
Uh, okay, so we asked we asked um, uh, over the weekend for questions, and uh, many f- flew in. Um, uh, this is a great question. Aidan O'Sullivan asks, for the British infantry soldier who served and survived the war from 1939 to 1945, what would he have noticed as big changes in the nature of his service experience, e.g. leadership, information, equipment, food? Well, I mean, well, I think that's a, I think that's such a great question. I mean, that's, and, and the danger, of course, is we need to spend the next twenty five minutes covering that and nothing else. I mean, massive, quite a lot, a massive, 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 amount. I think, massive. I mean, on, on the first, first of all, uh, you know, a huge um, surge in confidence. I would say in terms of of the of the back support. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of, I mean, it's incre- it, it makes a massive difference when you can see bombers going over and fighter planes going over, and yep. you know they're on your side rather than the other. Yeah, that that's a massive difference. I think the scale of the operation that you're a part of, I, I think you would have felt a pretty small fish yep. in a pretty small pond. Yeah, um, in 1940, but I think you would have felt a very small fish in a giant pond by 19. 19- 4445. Yes. Um food doesn't really change much that's much the same really. Um, um leadership I think would have improved generally speaking for the most part certainly at the, the higher level anyway. Yeah. Um uh, you know we've talked about that kind of sort of th- that that sort of crux point in in August 1942 where sort of to a certain extent before that the kind of leadership isn't great and after that it it's it, it, it's much much improved. improved. Yeah. And obviously that's a sweeping statement but 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 it's a marked one all the same, I think, for yeah. the most part. Um, well, I mean, you know, I think information was better. Yeah, well, and the uh, Army Education uh, Corps comes into, you know, uh, it swings into view, doesn't it? And you, you yep. get that, you get you get a, a change in engagement between the Army and the people in it in terms of uh, telling them why they're, what they're fighting for and what's going on. Yes. Um, you, I, I think the, the, the training, the kit, I mean, the the, the Kit changes, doesn't it? So the kit yep. it gradually improves. You, yep. you come away from the old SMLE and into the Mark IV with the with the pig sticker bayonet. Come away from the swords. The kit sort of updates itself and combs through. I mean, obviously the, the training varies, and the training varies depending on the taste, essentially, of your battalion commander. So the the, the degree to which you're learning about the new kit as it comes in. So a, a thing like a Piat, it varies to how much actual experience you've got using that new weapon but but you, you you will notice that it's that that stuff's coming online in theory you're, you're doing more physical fitness as well fitness becomes much more of a yep. much more of a thing but I mean, schools i think have a have a big battle impact. schools yeah um uh so an awful lot i think an awful lot changes and i think you 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 probably find that um, the army, the army is taking probably better care of you than if you were a professional soldier in the 1930s you know that it's yeah I think the other thing is a small unit, you know, comparatively small unit where I'm talking about sort of battalion or army yeah. regiment strength or, 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 you know, gun battery or whatever or, or, or field regiment. I think at that level, it's it's vastly improved because the people who are now the half colonels are people who started off the war as captains and majors yeah. and they've survived and and they're experienced and they know what they're talking about and they've yeah. been in the desert and they've been in, you know, Italy and they've been around the block and they know what they're doing. Um, and, and for the most part, you you get to be a, battalion commander because you've earned that 
that right. Now, obviously, again, there's there's always exceptions. There's always some sort of pretty crap people who kind of sneak in there somehow through the back door. But for the most part, you know, that's why you're getting people like Stanley Christopherson and, and John Semkin at, yeah. at the Sherwood Rangers, for example, and why the Sherwood Rangers have come so good because they've learned the hard lessons and they're still standing and they're able to apply that. Mm. Um, and there's just no substitute for for, for battlefield experience. Yeah. And that's that, and that is just filtered down, and the and the and the good people fil- make sure they filter it down. So I think I think the changes changes are a lot are, are are considerable. Well, they're to top down and they're but they're top down and they're bottom up, aren't they? It's yeah, the exactly. That's what's quite interesting about it is that yep. the, and the, and the sort of they meet in the middle. And obviously, you do have, you know, you have got you've got people resistant to Adam's reforms. I think it's very interesting. You know, Adam, Adam at one point considers bringing back the death penalty. I mean, he's got you know he's got yes, the, I know he does, yeah, which is yeah. really interesting because he does have you know he does have. This, there's this idea that he's a sort of, you know, liberal and Churchill doesn't like, thinks he's too lefty and all that sort of thing. <laughs> but but at, but at the same time, he is looking for how to make the army work yeah. and considers bringing back the death penalty at one point as a, as, as a way to do that, because yeah. that's actually what he's interested mm. in. That's mm. actually what he's trying to achieve. He isn't bringing these things in because he's some sort of... He's um, a complete bastard. It's yeah, because well, he wants well to- or, 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 or the things that appear soft to some people because he's some sort of metropolitan liberal elite yeah. elite person. He's just very clever and is w- wondering how what are the best pragmatic solutions to mobilize the army. Anyway, um that is a, I mean that's a, a, a that's, great, a great question honest, for Maiden. An amazing question and uh, and uh, um uh I would suggest Aiden if you want to read about that um, um Alan Orp, um, I, and I'm such a, a fanboy of Alan's but his book Browned Off and Bloody Minded Alan yes, Allport's browned off and bloody minded about the British soldier in the Second World War is the one you want to read on that uh, on that yep. subject. Um, uh, David Dickinson, uh, uh, surely not the David Dickinson, the um, uh, tangerine. No, he's a different editor. David Dickinson. He's he's part of the Dorset IC. That's right. Okay, thank you. He's a lovely chap. Um, he's just finished watching the excellent BBC Rogue Hero series. What a plus! What is your standout moment or theme, and why? Mine was the banter, the sheer audacity and skills, but mostly their ability to think beyond normal military group think at the time. Incredible. Well, what I loved what I loved about the show was um, was you know what it's what it's what I feel it's doing is it's trying to tell an eternal story about men who love war and what that does to them. That's the the. the I'd agree with that. I, I would say, say David, I would I, I would issue a word of caution um, <laughs> here in, in believing that what you're seeing on screen is anything like the reality. <laughs> Take it for what it is, which is a really cracking, good, good adventure story and and you know wartime drama. Yeah. yeah. But the banter is absolutely not how it was at all. It was completely. <laughs> Totally, you know, banter written for the 21st century. Um, your dusty and skills, yes, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give that. Um, think beyond the normal military group thing. Well, yeah, but I think quite a few people are starting to think outside the box by that stage. Well, I um, mean, it's been... You know, the LRDG it's, and... But it's been encouraged. Wavel, Wavel, who is where the buck stops for quite a while, um, uh, uh, you know, when he's, running, when he's running things in Palestine, he's looking for people who are unconventional. So basically, he can do things under the radar and on the cheap, which is how, after all, what Wingate gets Wavell's attention in the first place. Yes. So pre-war, and particularly in the desert, where you're trying to you're trying to address how you get around in the desert and what you're going to do, and also you don't really know, you know, after all, the war that you end up fighting in the desert in 1941 is not the one you were considering in 1938, 39, when they start thinking about what they're going to have to do. They're not expecting the Germans in that part of the world; they're expecting to deal with the Italians. But, yeah. but there is there is very much this idea that unconventional warfare is actually how you're going to do things in that part of the world because you're 
You're also trying to save money, you know, and uh, uh, do do things on the do things on the cheap. And that's where the that's where the LRDG are very much part of. How do we solve the problem of the desert? Long range penetration. It's how we've done things colonially and in Africa. This entire time was with long range penetration. We've been doing this for for a century. Yeah. So it's an it's an updated way of looking at that. So I mean, if that's that's what's quite, I think this sort of picture once you zoom out of the Second World War and look at a, like a a longer um, tradition of how you do your soldiering in Africa. Um, yeah. That kind of stuff fits with it, you know. Absolutely. But David, I just want to be absolutely clear about this. The banter was not realistic. You know, um, David Sterling didn't go around sort of going, "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> and and and. And Paddy Main didn't go around sort of going, ah, oh, so now oh, it's a competition, is it? Ah, oh, right. Yeah, right. He didn't say that either. There was I no kill all of you. I kill, I kill, I kill all of the you. And, <laughs> but, but, but also um, the city had each one where you've got in the TV series, you've got David Sterling kind of hurtling down with the Jeeps, shooting everything up. That was actually the entire regiment at the time that was yes. involved in that on the 27th yeah. of July, 1942. Um, and Paddy Main led one column. And Sterling led another. There were no, there was no competition about scores whatsoever. It's just absolute baloney. But I agree, it was great fun. I mean, the thing is, I think even the M sixty, if well, even the M sixty. Well, yes, I know. So, 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 my friend at Bear Arms, who did all the um, all the um, kit weaponry for it, he just said, "Look, yeah, I know." He said it was gutting. You know, he said, said it was just devastating. But he said the cost of getting a, a proper yeah. Panzer out there to Southern Tunisia just couldn't be done. Don't worry about it, everybody. I know. I want to get show. him on. Actually, he's up for coming on because he does. Oh, he great. does loads and loads of weaponry for these things. That's great. what he does. He supplies it and trains them and all the rest of it. I mean, I'd love to know the, the K guns, but the Vickers K guns. Yes, exactly. They must be rubber models. They can't. They, they can't be any. Well, left. I don't know. But anyway, he's but he's got this fantastic range near Bridport, right. um, where you can go and fire all this stuff. It's great. Why are you just telling me this now? What? <laughs> well, he's invited us down. He's invited us down. He's invited us down. He's invited us down. Anyway, I think we should go down there and record one yeah. with him. Yeah, but anyway, he's he's fascinating. I'm very interested in getting people on who who aren't sort of, you know, we we, we always assume it's just going to be other historians. Yeah, I, I think you 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 sent over a note at the weekend. I think that was a really good idea to get people who who make us think about all this in a slightly yeah. different way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got anyway. a, com- a comedian friend who, who 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 has a stars in battle dress thing he wants to talk to us about, which is all the people who, in the Second World War who, you know, did entertainment and then became stars in the 50s. Anyway, uh, Thomas Abrahams asks, keeping it Alamein related, if Rommel had been victorious in North Africa, how influential could it have been on the Eastern Front? Could it have helped defeat, uh, Germany defeat the USSR? Well, I mean... The thing is, he's not going to be victorious. I can't. I can't do this. What I can't. I can't okay. think of the circumstances. I, I, in, I would say what no. constitute. <laughs> and I'll tell you for why. Because they're going to get to the oil fields, and they're going to have exactly the same problem that they have when they get to Baku, if indeed they do get to Baku in Azerbaijan. That they've got no means of refining it, or indeed transporting it, because Middle East oil fields are really, really underdeveloped at this stage, and they're in the middle of the desert. And the Germans, and indeed the Italians, simply do not have the means of transporting it because ultimately it's got to go by ship. There's no, you know, even even if they've got enough shipping to get it to, you know, so how would, how would that work? So they bring it up to Suez, then they get to, you know, they've got Alexandria, so they, take it, they ship it out of Alexandria. In what? I mean, they just don't have enough. Well, and also, and also 
uh, Royal Navy then diverts its effort to sinking all that oil, uh, yeah. all of its submarine off effort yeah, yeah. to sinking that oil. Yeah, so it's just so no, it's just it's just not going to work. I mean, there was <laughs> you know Hitler's big plan was to join up the two. You know, so you've got Rommel kind of surging forward and North Africa into the Middle East. You've got the uh, Case Blue surging down to the Caucasus in the summer of 1942. And, you know, bingo, they all meet up and it's all, you know, happy days. But again, you know, it's a, there's just there's no means of transporting all this stuff. So, no, I don't think it would have made any difference. Because, okay. you know, we're not using the Suez Canal anyway. No, 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 we're not. No, well, well. And, unless, and even if the Axis have got the Suez Canal, even if the Axis have got the Suez Canal, it's not going to have to go through it because they haven't got any shipping. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, let's go on to Adam Presswich's question, which, I, which is kind of related. Um... What was the reliability quality of Allied kit and equipment <laughs> yeah. versus Axis? How did this change during the war as mass production was ramped up and new designs were accelerated into production? Well, I think Adam must be a new listener to the, <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> I have mentioned it once or twice yeah. in the last 500 well, episodes. Well, I mean, it gets the, the, the Allied kit, they do cut corners and they do try and do things, um, you know, as cheaply as possible. But the kit, Especially stuff that's made. I mean, the, 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 I mean, one of the things to bear in mind is there's a difference between the British version of mass production and the American version of mass production. The American version of mass production is true um, Henry Ford mass production, where everything's identical, everything's made the same way, diff- perfectory. So, you know, a Detroit Sherman might be different from a, you know one made somewhere else, but 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 they're the same. Aren't they? And there's lots of crossover of parts. And there's lots of crossover of parts. So, 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 the, so the protection cover on a Jeep will be exactly the same as it is on a truck. And the lamps are the same and everything's yeah. the same. So they're all interchangeable. So that so that you, you only need the one bulb or whatever. Um, British mass production is still essentially workshop mass production. So you have enormous workshops. So no two Churchill tanks are exactly the same, for instance because they're produced in that sort of British workshop, workshop style. This was really clearly illustrated to us when we went to Biggin Hill, and uh, uh, Peter Monk was telling us about how the way Spitfires are all different. They are, you can have, and he'll have, you know, four Spitfires up on jigs in his workshop, and they are all completely different, because Doris did the panels one day on the bottom of the wing. Uh, and you know, Felicity whichever, did it the next. And Felicity did it the next, and they drill it individually, and there is no template. They've got to put 30 rivets across or whatever, a panel left to yep. right, and they do it their own way. There is, whereas the Mustang, by contrast, is properly mass-produced identically. And so that's why Brit- – and then German mass production is like the, the, the – that, that but more so. Yeah. It's even more workshop production, which is, after yeah. all, um, uh, uh, David Willey pointed this out to me. He said, you know, if you're if you're the Germans and you're building tanks, you can't mass produce like the Allies do. And the British have got their form of mass, their form of workshop mass production pretty, pretty good by 1943-44. It's working very well. Certainly in aircraft production, it's working exceptionally well, even though every Spitfire is its own unique snowflake of an aeroplane, as it were. The Germans, they basically, they can't produce at the output. So that's why you end up with Tiger tanks. That's why you end up with less of something bigger and more ridiculous, as it were. Yeah. Because you can't do... You can't compete mass production, so you might as well produce something that's exceptional but a fewer number. That, that's the idea behind it. But but they also are mass produ- The quality of workmanship is getting worse and worse. It's and getting worse and worse and worse. Because of, of course, because, because of the people they're using in the factories. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they've run of out war, of labour. They're using uh, slave labour, prisoners of war. And, and they're also mass-producing vast numbers of, of kind of very very 
cheap bits of kit, such as a Panzerfaust and all the rest yeah. of it, which you know you can make in, you know, for two bob, yeah, or two fennigs or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, but it's very interesting. If you, you know, the uh, uh, Cosford, that the RF Museum at Cosford, for example, yeah. they've got a, an example of a of Focke-Wulf one ninety. Uh, and it's quite a late war model of the of the 190, and it's yeah. really, really rough around the edges. Yeah, it's yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of the panels fit together. Yeah. They're, they're all rough, and, and you know, yeah. it's, it, is, it is absolutely not Vorsprung Dirch technique at no. all. No, it's banged out in a hurry because, it's banged because out in after hurry. well, because after all, the Germans have got themselves in this double bind if they need to defend their airspace because it's under such colossal pressure. And also, Speer knows that the way to the way to get on um with his boss is to go to him and say, look at these incredible numbers of fighters I'm producing. So, yeah. so th- the Germans find themselves in this double squeeze of producing lots of stuff because that's politically uh, yep. expedient yes. for the, for the, for the politicians involved. And also because that's the, that's the defense pressure you're under. Yeah. So he, de- so he delivers on both counts, but then of course there's, as we said, there's no oil <laughs> because the, so you can't fly the bloody thing. That's why they're FU, F, uh, ME109Gs because they haven't got the right parts because yeah. they haven't got ball bearings, so think, they're using something else. Yeah. Um, and so the engine gets gets too hot and so then for, yeah. it catches fire. But, yeah. I mean, if you want to look, Adam, if you want to understand the brilliance of German engineering at the, uh, in 1939, for example, you yeah. want to strip down an MG34, which yeah. is an uh, is an absolute wonder to hold. If you, if you strip down the, the whole thing and look at all the component parts and look at the breach mechanism, for example, yeah. it is just stunning. It, yeah. it is it is it's the awesome. purdy of submachine guns, isn't it? it, it it's just it's as just high end as it could be. It's about yeah, as a as a machine gun, it is as high end as it possibly could be, and yeah. obviously that is completely unsustainable. Yeah, well, and 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 the MP forty four, the the world's first assault rifle, supposedly, is it, it, just hammered out. Well, and the point of, of it, the point of it is, it's is it's you, you it's pressed plates, isn't it? That's the yeah. point of it because that's easier and cheaper and quicker yep. to manufacture than and a it rifle. Is, and it's light. It's really light. The, yeah, yeah, the MP forty four. Yeah, but because because what you're trying to do is make things really. Quickly and cheaply, yeah. And also, and and then some of the sort of uh, uh, explanation of that that that, that they're, it's about it's about a spray and pray weapon because after all, marksmanship isn't the point anymore. Actually, the thing driving it is how do we make something dirt cheap? Yeah, and, and, and uh, quickly and lots of them, uh, and that's easy to give, easy to hand to someone who you haven't got to spend ages on a range teaching marksmanship to. You and just so, spray uh, around. Yeah, and and that's and, the lesson they've learned from the PPSH, which is the which is the yeah. Russian so, um, yeah, 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 yeah. sub and, and and I think that, that you end up that the, the you know the predominant the, the, the AK forty seven is the sort of is the conclusion that the Russians come to at the end of the Second World War, and they are the masters of of cheapest chips mass production, and they've yeah. learned that from the Germans. So the but they've improved the quality of the thing. They've made it more robust and made it work better. Hmm. You know the idea, the concept. I mean, they look the same, but they're not the same. Uh, yep. thing but i think it's that's what's gone on is that the germans i mean and, and it's like all of the german war effort which starts off snazzy and sort of full of intent and yeah. by and by the end it's of all it, a bit it, shabby and down it's, well, it's pillar to post that they're, they're 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 staggering from decision to decision because of the pressure they've put themselves the, the pressure they've walked themselves into slept walked exactly. into um should we should we try and do a couple more quickly before the yeah, yeah, before yeah. we, we mark gateby why were the church bells rung after alamein um, there have been other long westward advances before. Why was this one seen as different at the time? Love the pod, by the way. Watch the full back catalogue. Well, it's because it is actually, everyone knows that this is a this is a victory 
in the desert. The, 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 this, the, this is a British and, and, and Duke forces victory against German forces, and, and, it's, and it's the first one in the field. And it's unequivocal as well. It's not yeah. like Crusader where you've ended up basically going as far as you yeah. possibly can and uh, 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 ending up a gum tree as a result. And, and shattering your own morale in the process. It's yeah. a it, and it's the it's a calculated victory. Um, and, and, and I and, think I think there is a there is a there is a palpable sense this is a turning point because don't forget yeah. just around the corner is going to be torch, and so yeah. suddenly there is a path ahead where basically they can't fail. So they know it's a great victory. So Churchill says, I think you know we need to give everyone a lift. We've been in the war a long time. Yeah, um, it, it's time to do it. And and you know the whole point was that the church bells weren't allowed to peal for the duration of the war. So yeah. we're going to break this rule and, and have a bit of a bit of a knees up and a bit of a celebration and pat ourselves on yeah. the back, yeah. um, and it'll it'll give everyone a massive morale boost. And frankly, it did because there's nothing, yeah. you know, for, for for your for your true Englishman or Briton, there's nothing like hearing the kind of the the the, the joyous peal of church bells to kind of give you a give you an uplift and, a, yeah. and feel reassured that all is well with the world. Well, and uh, and the thing is, we're talking eighty years ago. When church bells and aircraft were the loudest things you'd ever hear in your life. Yes, that is also true. But also, it's it's a reminder, uh, isn't it, of the importance played by the church this time. This idea yeah. that God's on your side, that we're C of E and you know, sort of Christian nation. We're following kind of Christian morals, the kind of principles of the Ten Commandments, and all the rest of it. You know, democracy, freedom, uh, um, being nice to one another, mm. um, all that kind of stuff. All it, that it, kind it's of stuff. all tied. It's all tied in with that. And I, yeah. I think as as a as a morale boosting piece of propaganda, it was a really really good idea. Um, and one last one, um, and this is the most spectacular can of worms. Yes. If old Nick Hall asks, if ultra-intelligence was so advanced, why did the Battle of the Bulge seemingly take the Allies by surprise? Well, well, it's because ultra can be a double-edged sword, Nick. Yep. That's why. Um, yep. um, and, and actually, if you want to find out a bit more about this, I mean, obviously, we can tell you now in two minutes, but but Peter Caddick Adams has done yes. a whole chapter of this in his book, Snow and Steel, about the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, it's absolutely and, brilliant, and, that and, chapter. And, 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 uh, and it's a brilliant chapter, and it and it explains very clearly, very um, thoroughly, the complexities of intelligence. And Peter argues, and I would say argues very convincingly, and I completely agree with him, that because Ultra was so secret during the war, and you know until 1974 or whenever it was, it was all revealed, and now we revere. Um, the Bletchley part lot so much, and rightly so, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. We 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 are in danger of overemphasizing its importance. Yes. And and Peter's argument, and again, I completely concur with this, is that Ultra is part is one cog in multiple cogs yeah. that that add up considerably more yeah. than the sum of their individual parts well, when they when they are put together. And the mistake that was made wasn't really ultra-related. The Germans went into radio silence and no one interpreted that as, well, they're up to something. The, 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 why has it gone quiet? Yeah. That, that, so it wasn't does, an ultra thing, was it? Does that not presage an offensive? That they've gone, yep. they've gone quiet. And, it, and the Americans, uh, Trent Telenko on Twitter is someone, he, he, he tweeted a really, really long thread about this a while ago, about how the America, basically within the USAAF, the, the, the Americans had a, they had someone at the time going, um, uh, look, th- this, all, this all points directly to an offensive. Um, and him being told, shut up, because it didn't, fit the, it didn't fit the intelligence picture and it didn't fit the broad front picture that people wanted to um, look yeah. at. And uh, the, because, the, because the Americans, you know, they had, a, they had an electronic warfare squadron, didn't they? And they'd been, they'd been out 
trying to find out what was going on. And the silence wasn't interpreted as a sign that something was coming, which is, yep. you know, an important, le- clearly an important lesson to learn. But yes, Ultra Ultra's just part of the picture. Also, Ultra, Ultra can tell you what dispositions are, but very often it couldn't tell you intentions. So you couldn't really glean what was going to happen next very often. You could tell who was where and, and what, but you couldn't actually, You could. it was very hard from reading Ultra yeah. to know actually what the Germans are planning on doing. And also it got difficult to know what strengths were and stuff. Um, so you'd have, an, say, an SS Panzer Division, say, resting up somewhere, but you... You know, but you you wouldn't know what its strength was necessarily. Yes, necessarily. and you wouldn't know what it was about to do either. You wouldn't know what it was about to do, and you wouldn't know it. It'd be very hard to read its morale and its motivation and what's going on inside. And the truth of the matter is, it made no military sense whatsoever to launch a major attack at this time of year at this no. particular point by the Germans. So that's why they didn't. Yeah. Begin. What I'm going to mention is also there's 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 a few other questions that we we haven't got time to answer, but I think deserve their entire pod on them. So Mark yeah. Milsom says, I've often wondered about the other Axis powers and their motivation for coming in with Germany. Hungary yeah. and Romania. Chances, what did they offer? Were there any equivalents in the Japanese sphere of influence? Well, I think I think all those, those particularly those East European countries, I think they deserve a um, uh, absolutely yeah. deserve some That's pods on podcast. their own. Um, another one was um, Ian says, any chance you could do an episode about the neutral countries in the European theatre during the war, specifically yeah. Sweden, Switzerland, Portugal? Yeah, again, that needs another one. Well, I yeah. Um, Todd I mean, Kehoe I... says, how about the Forgotten Fleet and how it played a part in the Far East? The British Pacific Fleet took down the Sumatran oil refineries yeah. in January yeah. for Operation Iceberg 1 and 2, plus carrier strikes on Japan. Last VC was a Brit Corsair pilot, Hammy Gray. Well, there's several podcasts to be done on that. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's probably a whole one just on Hammy Gray, to be honest. And Corsair, British yeah. Corsair pilots in the Pacific, I yeah. I think is 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 yeah, yeah, very yeah. very amazing sexy story. indeed. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's that, that amazing memoir called Carrier Pilot. Yeah. Um, that our mate Roland White republished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. But anyway, so we can do all of those things, um, and it just makes us makes me realise that there's still lots to say. <laughs> there's only ever lots to say. Right, okay. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, uh, we got through a few, though, didn't we? Don't forget to go on the Patreon with the Jocks Continues. If you're a patron, uh, that carries on. I, I, um, I've i been sent my deadline for recording the last two chapters as well, because uh, we, we put it up before I completed it, which is quite good fun. Um Give us all something to concentrate the senses. Um, uh, and don't forget, we have Ways Fest 3 is the weekend of the 8th to the 10th of September. That weekend um, uh, next year, um, uh, if you came to the previous festival, you know what we're in for. If you don't, uh, if you didn't, then uh, it's uh, 50 talks from your favourite historians, living history demonstrations, um, uh, big, great big uh, olive green vehicles tumbling around in a field. Um, and like-minded Second World War afflicted friends and family. Um, It's been a pleasure talking to you all today. We'll see you again soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Cheerio.